With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Zing Zing, your host once again for a brand new season of the Women's Prize podcast, coming to you every fortnight throughout 2020. This year is the 25th anniversary of the Women's Prize for Fiction, and you've joined me for a special episode in which we are challenging you to year of reading women. From Zadie Smith's White Teeth to Chimamanda Ngozi and DJ's Half of a Yellow Sun and Naomi Alderman's The Power, we are spotlighting all 24 Women's Prize winning books during this podcast series with eight special book club episodes in which three guests discuss three of the brilliant winning novels from the past years. You'll also hear from the women who've judged the prize during its lifetime, so you'll be getting not one but two hot takes from the past 25 years of the prize, alongside a new generation of readers coming to the books in 2020. And we want you to join in the conversation. Go to hashtag readingwomen on Twitter and Instagram to share your thoughts as you read along and head to the Women's Prize website at womensprizeforfiction.co.uk to learn about all 24 books, read samples, dive into our reading guides and exclusive interviews with the authors, plus lots more to help set you off on your reading journey. I'm joined today by three amazing guests. Our first is author, journalist and host of the award-nominated podcast Sentimental Garbage, Caroline O'Donoghue. Also joining us is radio and television presenter Vic Hope. And lastly is Daisy Buchanan, journalist, host of the podcast Year Booked and author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me. Now, welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. Hello. Excited to be here. (laughs) Today's book club is all about identity. To explore that theme, we are diving into the 2015 winner How to Be Both by Ali Smith, Property by Valerie Martin, our 2003 winner, and Larry's Party by Carol Shields, which won the prize back in 1998. So tell me, everyone, how was your experience of reading the three books? I really liked reading them together because there were so many different voices. It was interesting, I think, to, I guess, because How to Be Both is the very typical example of a writer who is really taking on two different voices that really, um, you know, I don't think are necessarily her own and making them her own and then um you know Valerie Martin you know it's a a voice that's sort of ancient as well as other things it's you know revisiting a time back in history and then um Carol Shields as um well it's not written in the in the first person but she's you know looking into the psyche of a a man um living in the 20th century so I think that's it's interesting how much identity really was at the center of everything and how I think I engaged with the books or didn't engage with them in terms of the way I responded to the voice of the central character so you know Larry I felt a deep tenderness for um both of the protagonists in How to Be Both I you know adored and I felt really moved and absorbed by their journey because in um Property there is no one in that book that you really connect with even though it is so well told I struggle with that because it was just so hard to spend time in that awful awful world with those Mm. people where you know society's fallen apart and everyone's so cruel and so self-serving there was no tenderness there yeah it's weird because I think when you're you're reading it the characters that I assumed I would have an affinity with um and that I would love like Sarah I thought Mm. I would love in property but at no point did and I felt a bit guilty for for not feeling that way Mm. um 
was in quite stark contrast to say a character like Larry who like why should I care but mm. I did but I deeply deeply did and I think reading them together and reading them through these very disparate prisms of, of value and prisms of society and nationhood um, was interesting because you, you're seeing completely different times but very similar feelings and sentiments that I could relate to despite the fact that none of these characters are like me it's so completely true and I think as well these books taken as a as a triptych don't really have anything in common with no. one another very as you say different on time periods other than different they all voices won the women's prize. <laughs> <laughs> other than that other than that precisely um and but the only thing that i could really find to connect them is that they are all that it is a group of people we take all these characters and put them in a dinner party who are just not behaving as they should so i think there's a lot to talk about so <laughs> we're really getting very very into it but so i'd like to take uh, the moment to kind of go through these books one by one kind of explain to whoever's listening what these books are actually about and i'd like to start with how to be both by ali smith which is the most recent winner the 2015 winner um i who do you who who among you would like to give the synopsis of this? Because it's quite a tricky book. It's quite experimental. And I'm really curious to know how people read it and, you know, which which person or protagonist you started with. Yeah. Because obviously mm. the book begins with one of two choices mm. because she printed half the run beginning with one protagonist's viewpoint and the other half of the run with the other protagonist's viewpoint. Mm. So yeah. I feel like... I'd love Would to have you? seen that conversation <laughs> I mean, with their publisher. Can you imagine the publishers who got the manuscript? Yeah. I wonder if they got two manuscripts, actually. Mm. Oh. Well, yeah, because they just got to get, get it sent out and get it made. Yeah. I had no idea that it was printed this way until today. Mm. And when I heard that, I thought, how on earth would you have been able to read it the opposite to the way mm. that I read it? And I don't know which way, which way did you guys... I, heard, I, had, I had George first. Yeah, I had George first. I had well. George first. Yeah. Oh. But I started to read it in 2015 when it won, and I had uh, Francisco first. Right. And... Mm. I just thought this book is not for me. I cannot yeah. read this. I would have that same I reaction. Can't I get think. into it at <laughs> yeah. all. And I was really quite scared about trying to read it again. Thought, oh, I didn't really get on with this last time, and it dazzled me. I was, I love George. It absolutely gripped me, and it was amazing how unexpected that was. And it was really exhilarating, generally, to realise I can not get on with a book and then five years later when I'm older and wiser really really connect yeah. with it it's the benefit of age yeah. so um, I'll jump in we have <laughs> yeah. two um, two stories the first is a contemporary story of George who I think is about 16 I believe she's doing her GCSE she's got a little brother and her mother has died and her father is really really struggling to adapt to life that but the, her mother is very much present throughout the story the mother is um i think she works for a think tank and she's an economist but she's also a sort of a, a radical artist and her presence in life is so vivid in a weird way she made me think a little bit of um of bernadette in in where'd you go bernadette oh yes great reference that yeah. sort of that liveliness but it's about george trying to to find herself in the world and make space in the world but her mother becomes absolutely obsessed with this particular figure in a painting and i think she's seen it in a magazine and the second story is um it's francisco's story and we let he is the painter and it's all it's i thought it was really interesting as well because you learn so much about sort of like you know patronage and the, the system of what you do and it was so such a delight to see their talent being encouraged um there's a duality in terms of um 
Francisco's gender is something that we see in different ways in all the books is how much more freedom you have when you live as a man or present yourself as such um mm. some good sexy bits in the Francisco yeah. bit as well I thought which I enjoyed um <laughs> so it's really about this link and there are very definite links between the two stories I was quite slow to see when um when Francisco really was referring quite directly to to George <laughs> it took me a few years like oh yes of course yeah it took yeah, me a while to realize slow. that the little pictures in people's hands were their phones mm. <laughs> what is he talking yeah. about <laughs> and ages. the wall as well I'm like why is he being so rude about their wall building skills <laughs> <laughs> where is this wall so was this an immediate love for you guys like when you started reading it were you like this is a great book or did it take a while to get into I think it took me I'm going to say 20 or 30 pages mm. of being like I remember not liking this and then and I think because it's starting with that new story and also because I really I loved George's mother I could see I'm not sure I'd love her as a mother but as a character I was so immediately dazzled by her and I think about how you how she's given, she gives George freedoms that perhaps we don't feel that, you know, we have, or I don't feel like I had as a child of very non-Bohemian parents. I don't think Amdram counts. <laughs> it took me probably about the same to get into George's story, but by the end of George's story, I was in love and I was so annoyed that I had to leave it and come back to this exactly other story. I didn't know. The same. I, was, I was like, who is this, Francisco? I don't, <laughs> get out. Please, can I take it back to the bookshop and say, yeah. I, just, I just wanted more George, please. But then no. once I got into that, I fell in love again. Mm. And it was, the, it was the same feeling inside my stomach that I was having for this second character um, and w working out that, that they were intertwined and that George's imagining of the artist having been a girl who had to pretend to be a boy and then mm. realising that this was a girl pretending to be a boy it was incredibly satisfying and I think that for a story that had so much grief and sadness mm. in it mm. it was full of joy yes, it emanated from the page there were parts of it that, was, that were laugh out loud funny yeah I have to be honest, of the three books, um, I adored the other two, but this was my least favourite. And um, I hated myself for that. <laughs> because because Ali Smith is such a gem and I love listening to her being interviewed. This is actually my first Ali Smith book that I've read. And um, you kind and you, it's a beautiful cover and it won the prize quite recently and you just want you don't you want to be someone who also loves Ali Smith because that puts you in a in a in a heightened category of existence. <laughs> Back to identity. You want to be yes, yeah. I, I would like to be lover. an Ali Smith fan and I but I, I was saying to the girls before we started recording I think Ali Smith is a great writer and I think great writers need dissenters and I think I might be a dissenter <laughs> I oh, just didn't get it I just it, I, I never quite got into it and what also frustrated me the most was that um I kept being thrown these delicious plot points. This mm -hmm. this affair that, that the mother has with, or kind of a pseudo affair mm -hmm. with a friend of hers, who ends up um, this being this woman who lies about her entire existence, tantalizing. Never get back to it. Um, this kind of teenage romance that she that George has mm, with her best yeah. friend, new best friend, and then she suddenly moves to like Denmark or something, and like all all these bits come in, and you're like, oh god, I would love this. And Ali Smith, she throws that in your face. She literally says towards the end of George's um. um part she says this would be the part where the plot would happen but I'm not doing that here's a ghost <laughs> and I'm like oh I have to respect it but I don't like it well, I have a question which is did you guys actually look up Francesco's art because you know the artist is based on a real artist I did not know that yeah no right. it, I did not look up the art I had I'm ashamed a, of that I had a look at the Wikipedia page for the artist there's nothing in I think Ali Smith just made up the bit about you know him pretending to be a, well him a girl pretending to be him 
but the art I would say is so slightly disappointing almost because you read this book and it's so radiant and it makes the art sound amazing and then you look at I guess computer resolution images of art and then you're like oh is this it it makes me wonder if she actually saw the paintings in real life and decided Mm. to write the book about them but maybe it doesn't matter because what the obsession is in the first part or depending on how you read it in George's part is with the sketches beneath the paintings Mm. so and I guess you're asking that question what comes first because in history throughout history all we're ever going to see is the finished piece when in fact those beginnings and it's the same with any of the great like form artists like your Klimt's or your Sheila's it's actually the sketches that can be the most beautiful and the most telling when it comes to what it means to be the artist as opposed to the viewer of the art the work in progress yeah Mm. and it was the progress and the bit I loved the most was seeing Francisco develop as an artist and I really love the bits where I'm going to the brothel where and sort of surprising the the women that um that were painted or or drawn and that just that we got to see that talent evolving and growing it was I always um it's like I love um bits and books where you know someone's business is really starting to take off or you know that's sort yes. of that promise starts you know develop, you can kind of imagine the the, the training montage, montage of it. yeah <laughs> yeah it's like those sketches um are, are what make up the character what make mm. up the identity more so than what the the painting at the end of their career would actually be and i think because i could imagine the painting so clearly yeah. i'm going to claim right. i didn't want to see the real one because <laughs> what i was imagining was just so glowing and radiant that anything could only disappoint me i think that's the thing isn't it about books that discuss great works of mm. art or mm. you know any kind of music really one of the books that also won the women's prize which we're discussing on a different episode is bel canto which is an Anne patrick oh, yeah. novel and it features an opera singer who is the best opera singer in the world. She doesn't exist in real life, but the operas do. So I read the book and I went and listened to the operas, imagining that I would immediately fall in love with them. Yeah. Don't like opera. <laughs> like it at all. Just will never be a person who likes opera. Yeah. It's interesting though. Um, I, I find that subject also fascinating when, um, when it's a book, which is a piece of culture, when it's about a fictional piece of culture. So it's up to the author to dream up something amazing. Um, it, it rarely seems to work or rarely mm. seems to take off. But Daisy Jones and the Six, mm. which I've just started reading, seems to be a great example of that. But I'm, I, in my own book, I, I kind of struggle with that because it's about filmmakers. And um, for ages, I was like, how can I make this convincing? And then at the last minute, I was like, oh, what if it's bad? What if it's bad and she knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the classic example of that is the goldfinch, right? Yes. Which is about a picture of a goldfinch and then when you buy the book on the cover mm. it looks just a really unassuming bird and you're like oh this yeah. fuss for a bird who risks their life with this bird <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay before we move on to the next book let's pause to hear from Ch- Shami Chakrabarti who was the chair of the judging panel in 2015 and she tells us why How To Be Both was picked as the winner I think it's partly about gender identity because there are issues um, about gender identity uh, both misunderstanding Um, somebody's gender but also uh, changing one's outward uh, appearance in the ancient story in order to just get on you know women are being discriminated against I want my daughter to to be uh, a painter and to to make her way in the world she should basically pretend to be a boy and a man and how you live with that so so yes gender um, is is a big part of how to be both but 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 there are other complexities too there are other um, there are other boths um, in the story, watching, being watched. You know, when does the you know the surveilled person becomes the watcher? That's an, another aspect um, to it. Um, ancient, modern, um, j- just so many, so many um, 
both so much otherness and and complexity in the book. In the end, it was it was nearly it was nearly unanimous, and and I think everyone was was proud of the decision. From my point of view, though, I loved I, I loved pretty much all the books on the short list and many on the long list. It's very hard to go from long listing to to, to short listing, but for me, this is the book that people will be reading in 100 years time long after I'm gone and we'll be um, looking at it as a book about the time we're living in now but also um, as a book about about the complexities of life and death and grief and gender and so much more. Don't forget, you can join in the discussion by using the hashtag readingwomen. So our second book is Property by Valerie Martin, our 2003 winner. And this was a very brutal book to read. I'm not going to lie. It's probably one of the more violent ones that I've read on the podcast. It's like that that Woody Allen quote. It's like, it was brutal and in such small portions. (laughs) (laughs) It is is hard to read, but it is mercifully very short. So you can get through it in an afternoon. (laughs) It sort of warns you that it's going to be brutal from the outset, but you never actually see it happen until towards the end of the book the actual spurt of violence yeah um but it's coming it's coming in in a way you think it's not gonna ever actually happen you'll just have a description Mm, of it for so long but no it does so before we start talking about it would anyone mind giving a quick synopsis of what it's about yeah sure i'll go uh property is a story of a woman called manon who is living in new orleans um pre-civil war but i'm coming to towards the end of the antebellum plantation period she's kind of she's married to a complete sadist um uh, who she kind of it was very much an advantageous financial match that was made after her father was killed and um, the sort of slavery and how white men treat their slaves is this kind of thing that goes throughout the novel uh, her her husband has this kind of disgusting god complex where he's torturing uh, his slaves and he's also has this relationship with Sarah who is a slave brought into the house by Manon. Um, and this obviously creates this uh, tension in this relationship between Manon and Sarah that you, as, an, as a reader, you want it to become this thing where maybe they murder him in his sleep together and they flee, but they don't. Um, what actually happens and what I think it made it so hideously resonant is that Manon is becomes somebody who feels victimized by somebody who is the victim. And I think you see that so much in society, right? Where um, people will just, will they're more comfortable in that way. So she, she learns to hate Sarah. Sarah eventually um, disappears during a slave revolt where her husband is killed. And um, then she goes to any lengths to track Sarah down. I mean, in many ways, Manon is one of the most unlikable protagonists of the books that we've had to read All for the literature. podcast. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, in, yeah. in writing. <laughs> Yeah. It reminded me a lot of Aunt Lydia from the follow-up to the yes, ha- Handmaid's yeah, Tale. Yes, great connection. Where, you know, it's, a entirely, it's a book told from entirely the villain's perspective mm, and you just mm. hear her rationalise over and over again why, you know, subjugation is absolutely correct, why the violence is absolutely justified mm. and yet she's never really quite brought to account for those views. I do think, though, that Aunt Lydia has this really, really sly, fierce intelligence and she cares much more about surviving whereas with Manon her ego is so bloated mm. and I think that what that is what leads to her ruin in the end that she is so so self-absorbed she feels yeah. so hard done by mm. all the time 
I would say she's got one redeeming feature and that's her wit. I think she's occasionally a little bit funny. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, no one in the book is particularly nice. Even the characters who, I, I've said this before, who maybe we should like, like Sarah, um, is given no redeeming features. But that's because we see this all through Manon's viewpoint and she can't see them herself. Mm. So it makes you very acutely aware of that subjectivity that all of us have and that maybe we have ourselves. You kind of look at yourself and and, and maybe where in your day-to-day life you might also be unempathetic, unsympathetic, mm. horrible, a horrible bitch, <laughs> which which we all can be. And you're, you're so right and it makes you so curious about Sarah because she looks at Sarah and she sees she's just like oh this kind of blankness and she's like god she never talks to me she never mm. responds to my questions directly and she just kind of wants to rattle her the whole time and then Sarah goes out she escapes to the north and for like about six months or something she she spoiler but she sort of lives in drag right mm. and she she's able to much like in how to be both actually yeah. she she lives as a man and um is able to pass and is and all these people are saying yeah lots of people met her on this cruise ship and said she was a very distinguished gentleman mm. and and manon's like who who has thought of sarah's being quite dull has been like i i can't fathom how <laughs> she was able to maintain this ruse but th- there's a richness to sarah that we don't get to see mm. and you so badly want to see it until the end and uh, this is is this a spoiler when she finally says that all she wanted was a seat at the table. Mm. Yeah. And that was the first thing that she said that resonated with me. Maybe it's because of Solange, but <laughs> I just, it, that, that for all of the starkness of this novel, that mm. was so rich a thing to read on the page. Well, I do think it was a really bold and courageous and strong move to write a book where everything is great and everything is bleak and there isn't necessarily anyone that you connect with. I think mm. that's a really powerful mm. thing to, a really, really powerful move to make. And I'm really, really glad that Valerie Martin did not go down the route of making Sarah. You know, although I mean, I don't think anyone could say that any slave in this novel is not a victim yeah. of of these awful, awful people and of the society, but she's not any kind of you know disney victim you don't mm. feel because even though seeing her through manon's eyes makes you want to find something to connect with her and like but also that kind of the genius of the fact that manon just can't see that she thinks that her husband is the you know the main villain and the real baddie in sarah's yeah. life when when it's her it reminded it made me think of two books that i've really really loved um and it's a bit of a leap. Well, I don't know if anyone's read um, Good Behaviour by Molly Keane. I, th- I found oh, yeah. the voice in that book really similar to Manon's in that you've got this heroine, sort of anti-heroine, who's completely, completely delusional. Um, and that Good Behaviour is about, it's another sort of a woman who's kind of trapped in rural Ireland in this, it's with this family who have, you know, seen better days. And she's um, dismally in love with her brother's best friend who is gay. And she is absolutely in denial <laughs> of this. But that sort of almost, you know, puterish level of delusion and narcissism is mm. there. That's I just read um, Corregidora by Gail Jones, which is, I think that's set in, I can't remember if it begins, I think it begins in the 40s and carries on through the 60s and beyond. But it's about a woman... Um, living gosh i can't remember she's in uh, new york or philadelphia but she is the descendant of slaves and the grotesque motif of the book is how her her 
great grandfather is also her grandfather who keeps talking about making generations and impregnating these women and then their children and I was really I think Corregidor is the most blistering astonishing painful beautiful book and it's so magnificent when it comes to a really frank discussion about female sexuality and that's what made me really really sad and what broke my heart a bit for Manon is there's no idea all sex is for her is pain all sex is for any woman is pain mm. and what's fascinating about Corregidor is female sexual pleasure is something that I feel all I do is I come here and I'll be like <laughs> but as well honey um but to see I suppose um you know the background or the relief I, I think it's really enlightening to read those books close together mm. and I think that one has helped me appreciate the other more I guess because it's a matter of light and shade isn't it and property to me is all darkness mm. really it's mm. very bleak and it's very unremitting and even you know the redemption at the end for someone like Sarah doesn't quite come fully no. realized because yeah. you don't really spend any no. time with her or, no I wonder you know? if you have like a level of sympathy for her because she is not afforded any perspective whatsoever mm. she is so so ignorant and ignorance is not bliss for her at all. It's it's a prison for her. She doesn't even know that she's ignorant. Yeah, she's so yeah. set in her ways. And for those of us reading, at least we can see the course of history. She mm. doesn't have a mm. clue that we're going to look back on that time with such utter disgust. I really admire that in any in any <laughs> historical novelist as well because the temptation is to be like have the character be like oh, if only women could vote yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I would have shot Hitler if I could have <laughs> yeah. yeah but yeah you're right nobody gets perspective it's know? so interesting as well I think her lionizing of her father and her conviction that he is a good man and he was you know he mm. was a kindly slave owner and all of and I felt as though I came away with more questions and answers about him and but I suppose it was this time of just everything being hidden and no one that's I suppose yeah. when it comes back to identity nobody could understand themselves no one was allowed to know about themselves everything was behind locked doors um, but also what, a thing that I thought was such a brilliant brilliant part of the writing and made it a really stressful and comfortable read was that the lingering menace uh because she said that the most brutal act of violence comes quite late yeah. but you're never allowed to forget that it's there and it mm. was interesting I think reading that in these times when there's always a sort of lingering threat of global menace and something right. dreadful happening I, I think that's possibly why I, I struggled with it as much as I did it seemed to be too much of outside coming in it's not a very relaxing read no, no. and I was gonna ask do you think that this book is the one with the most amount of contemporary resonance it feels like it right now, like mm. today. Yeah. Her mum gets really, really ill and seeing that contagion spreading mm. and the, yes. the, the whipped up hysteria about yeah. it felt like it resonated a huge amount reading it just the other week. Mm. Um, I guess just the ingrained racism that they don't even know is racism anymore because of the way that it is such a huge part of their everyday lives feels unfortunately like something we we do get every day. Yeah. <laughs> I, the one thing that um, kind of piqued my interest a little bit was that um, uh, Valerie Martin is a, is a white author. She's a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to write a story that is, it is such an American black story, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Is a, is a big bite to take off. And, um, and, and what's interesting about reading the book is that it is about white women's accountability in this mm-hmm. system. Because mm-hmm. when we hear about accountability within slavery, it is generally a male story, right? And, and... And she is focused on like, look, you know, women were a part of the system too. And she's really offering that, which mm. I think is really 
like it's a, it's a it's a first of all it's a brave decision to 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 be like no I'm going to write about this mm-hmm. and it's a brave decision to to be like no here's our again here's our accountability within this and I do think I do think there are more conversations now around which authors should be representing what issues and I, I it made me think if the book came out today would there be an instant social media reaction to like what right does she have because I do notice those dead discussions happening online much more than they would have in 2003 she had to make Manon as awful as possible yeah. for yeah. to be yeah. accountability and I suppose yeah. that's that she is not writing from the perspective of Sarah and maybe that's what's so interesting about how little we are allowed to learn about Sarah yeah. and how it's all Manon's projections so I think in that way um maybe you know maybe it holds up but I think again back to identity I'm back to the main question about who is allowed to to write what I thought that it's by taking on the perspective of this a white woman who is the worst example of Mm. the you know terrible not just privilege you know living in privilege and delivering abuse Mm. that you know she's sort of the way that's expressed and that we're seeing it all through her eyes, I think, yeah, as you say, you know, to be, to say this is how we are complicit, I think is, it makes it, and I, to be honest, that was why I wanted to, respond. definitely, I think this book is unignorable. It's, you can't not respond to it yeah. and it is compelling. But mm-hmm. I wanted to, I think, find more in the writing than I did there are some really stunning and jaw-dropping and breathtaking descriptions and I think some something's done masterfully but I think it's almost the research is perhaps more impressive than the writing or that's how I found it well now that we're having this discussion actually it makes me think that maybe the fact that we don't hear from Sarah very much is Valerie Martin acknowledging the fact that she can't really write from that perspective that all she can write from is her perspective Mm. as a white woman responding to those events historically um, it's an interesting conversation and I think it's one that we're going to keep having on the podcast um, mainly because if nothing else stories about identity and representation are probably you know going to be the bread and butter for decades to come this podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream, or paired with your favourite book. Our third and final book for today's episode of Reading Women is Larry's Party by Carol Shields. Now, this won the prize in 1998. Would anyone like to provide a brief synopsis of it? Very brief. It's about a man called Larry. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, really. He's, He's Canadian. He's fairly ordinary, but the way that Carol Shields describes these tiny little details of the events of his life makes him quite extraordinary. He's incredibly likeable. um, And although it's a winner of the Women's Prize and it's a book by a a woman, um, it's about a man. And I think that I wasn't expecting that when I got got this sent to me as a thing that we were going to discuss. Were you thinking it was Larry with an I at the end? I just (laughs) assumed that, that, I mean, maybe I should have known, but I I loved this book. I loved it as well. I really loved it. I also loved Larry's party. He he starts as a florist, but he soon becomes um, a a top maze designer, (laughs) which is a job that now I want to do. But yeah, there's this this symbol of of mazes that goes throughout and, uh, you know, the mazes it's all about um, a journey back to the centre and, and looking at yourself, that 
auto perception and discovering yourself as well and then you go in you come out again and what you said earlier about only really being able to appreciate a maze from above and when you've got that distance from it is I guess a metaphor for life you'll only really know once we're dead what it's all about I wonder if something that I just loved about being in Larry's world and, you know, unlike um, unlike property, there are definitely sort of high points and relaxing points, but it is to do with Larry being a man that he is so lucky. All the good things that happen to him are sort of mm. happy accidents and he muddles through yeah, and he yeah. always, you know, so comes true. out with luck on his side and how, you know, while he is... Um, I can't think there are many instances, definitely in terms of him talking about parenthood. And I think, and I forgave him a lot because oh, it was a different time. It was the 70s. It was the 80s. But he does, I don't think you see any sort of, you know, out and out misogyny. Or He doesn't, mm. he has romantic he really partners. He really loves women, yeah. you know. And, you know, for for themselves and for the people that, that they are. And he has no, I think, compunction either about, you know, he loves working with flowers. He Although his father of that generation is a little bit suspicious of it he just connects with it and never never questions it but it, his manhood sorry <laughs> means he's avoided a space where he never has to answer too many questions about who he is and what he's doing and that's why he has such a lovely time and why we all love being in his company i feel like less listeners listening to this now will be like this guy sounds really boring if you listen to his life. And he is but boring. He's he yeah. a boring man. <laughs> um, but the, I think, I don't know about you guys, because um, I think it says he was born in 1950. So, mm. And we meet him in 1977. And uh, that makes him the exact age as my dad. And it really did feel like a, a journey into the mind of your own father, of the, of the person that for for years was just kind of a foot in a newspaper and is and I think I think dads in general are a, much like a woman's heart a deep ocean of secrets <laughs> and, um, and I, I just really appreciated like the kind of living in that head for a while and you can you know it's quite easy to be like oh god we're all we're all sick of straight white men and we are but um you know <laughs> it, it really takes a wonderful writer to make someone's very ordinary very domestic very middle class life so wonderful and so interesting and it almost feels like like a weird flex from carol shields like, look what i can do <laughs> look what i can do look so what i can make you involved in i love i truly truly love tom wolf and armistead mopan and i have a sort of love hate relationship with brett easton ellis but what i adore about all those writers is the detail of the times they write in and the magnificent social observation it really is a sociological mm. document there's a i think armistead mopad Mopan. I said Mopan, the famous motorcycle rider. Yeah. I said Mopan has a line in, I think it might be the first Tell City book, where it's like the men all express their individuality by wearing patched madras pants. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the sort of line that I think Carol Shields, there's, it's just the most amazing, striking um, sketching of people from really vivid period details. And I think that's the... I do not love historical novels I really really struggle with them and I don't want five pages explaining how exactly someone goes to the toilet in Tudor times but (laughs) any social history from about 1930-1940 onwards is all I want and that's what this does so deftly and doing it sort of decade by decade that's what I truly adored although I think that possibly makes it quite an indulgent read. It's very buoyant isn't Mm. it so you feel bouncy along with it but there is no real description of actions like nothing actually happens it's all reflections on the action that's been Mm. perceived which 
I guess lets you reflect on how you might perceive that action as it would happen. Um, and y y y you feel quite reflective, I think, when you're reading it. It just lets your mind wander without it ever feeling like you don't know what's going on. What did you guys think of the way the book was split up? So it's called Larry's Party, but I think it begins with like Larry's school, Larry's job, Larry's penis. Yeah. <laughs> Larry's penis is a chapter yeah. I enjoyed. <laughs> um, what, what, I, I, the new Ralph. Yeah. The new <laughs> yeah. So it starts with 15 minutes in the life of Larry Weller. Yeah. And you can very much time that that's about 15 mm -hmm. minutes, what happens there. And then, yeah, Larry's love, Larry's folks, Larry's work, Larry's words, Larry's friends, yeah. Larry's penis. <laughs> Where Carol Shields goes through every possible word for penis. Yeah, she does. Over about three pages. Yeah. The two things I learned loads about were penis etymology and <laughs> ferns. To be honest, I don't think an author could ask for more than that. No. Yeah. <laughs> I know all about bushes and hey. not that kind of thing. <laughs> I like that, that. I found that a really helpful way for me to order my thoughts, but not about folks, work or peni, but actually <laughs> more about whatever felt like his reflection in that chapter. So, you know, in work, it almost felt like he was talking more about love and in mm -hmm. in his words he talked about his space in the world mm -hmm. so it was almost like it was thematically culminating all of mm, these yeah. ideas without it actually being about what that chapter is purporting to be about so am i right in thinking that this was probably all of your favorites was it i, I don't have a favorite i don't know mm. i don't know i think i i've, I've already been very frank about it <laughs> <laughs> um, um I think I, d I definitely loved them for different reasons. I think what I loved about Larry's party is that on every single page, there was just a lovely treat. Do you know what I mean? Like a lovely like sentence that just by itself, you just kind of wanted to write down. Right. Like Even today when I was flicking through it, it said um, uh, they had the kind of so-so relationship that was always running on vertical lines. And you just kind of imagine the sort of like dismal sort of train, toy train track going along. It just, I found that so evocative. And I felt it was like full of lovely sweets and gems, whereas property was just full of gruel and nails. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but uh, the thing is, I think I'm going to remember property for as long as I live. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, whereas I think I'm going to dip into Larry's party and maybe keep it in my loo, you know? Like a little treat. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree with you. Yeah. I think that property will stay with me because it's so harrowing. Larry's party, I probably got the most joy out of reading yeah. in the present but if I'm going to recommend a book to anyone it's probably going to be how to be both because it, it I think it's going to give the reader an experience that they haven't had before mm. which is mm. what I tend to look for in a recommendation mm. I'm really really excited to recommend Larry's Party and to read more Carol Shields um, it's when you discover a voice and you think, where have you been all my life? Yes, and I she, there's so much to get into. I was the and same. I, I'd never heard read a Carol Shields before, and there's so much to do now. There's a passage that's a meditation on Larry really being called Lawrence, but how you know you come into a world as a Larry, and a Larry is a certain kind of man, and it could be you know um, George and Jerry riffing in the coffee shop, but it's so <laughs> true, and it really does make you think about, and that's I suppose perhaps the there is part on identity to bring it back to our theme yeah. but i think they're loose themes don't worry <laughs> about but it. these are the things that really really stay with me as a reader the sort of the, the snippets and the vignettes and i think i will always remember like the shape of property and i'll always you know believe it to be an incredibly important book but you know i'm just i'm so excited about pressing larry's party onto people and i think that it's a book that it, it contains multitudes. It's about nothing, but it's about 
everything, their universe is here. And the joy of it as well, I think, is that we are all Larry. And so we get a bit of our own Francisco experience, I think. Mm. We can see what it's like to move through the world with that kind of joyous, accidental freedom. What I loved about Larry's party as well is that there's all these kind of things that could be miniature novels within the mm. book. Like this whole bit about his his mother who accidentally killed mm. her father-in-law when she yeah. was a young bride. It's just like the most harrowing, terrible, but like quite comic story. Of like she cans some beans poorly mm. and he gets food poisoning and just dies. And that's the rest of her life. <laughs> it's such a weird instant poisoning as yeah. well that she, you know, just a little murder is a treat. Yeah. <laughs> murder. I learned a new word the other day um sonder which means oh. the realization of every life that passes you is as complex and as vibrant as your own oh, and i, I think that. that's what La- larry's party mm. meant for me i'm just going to look at every normal weird i don't know boring person on the tube and think ah sonder <laughs> oh, so good i love that i think it's going to make me a much more compassionate rush hour traveler yeah. yeah i think that is probably the best endorsement you can get for a book a more <laughs> compassionate person at rush hour yeah. so here's our final judge for today's reading women episode so this is sheena mcdonald the chair of judges back in 1998 on larry's party by carol shields she tells us why it was a winner and i was very pleased that in the year i was chairing the panel uh, the very distinguished uh, group of panellists agreed that this is a good book because I think it's a fantastic book. I, I think it's... Um, what I really like about it is that it tells an ordinary man's story towards the end of the 20th century and nothing very much happens and therefore... I mean, he has ups and downs, he has high points and low points and it's very whimsical, actually, that he becomes a, a landscape gardener at all. It's, it's a, and therefore it reflects everybody's real life. And, and if you haven't read it, I urge you to read it. It's, 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 a, um, it's, it's, a, it's a must birthday present for every 40-year-old man. In fact, men don't tend to read fiction by women. And if they read this, any man who read this would be completely converted, I think. Did any of them change the way you think about, you know, any kind of issues? Yeah, well, finding out the difference between a maze and a labyrinth was like a revelation to me. The fact that, you know, a labyrinth is just a complex set of paths, whereas a maze is a puzzle that is designed to baffle. But then there's actually, in How to Be Both, there's a a lovely quote where Francesco realises that life is a labyrinth. It's a set of paths that, although they look straight, they could go in any direction, and they do, and that things rarely turn out as you think they're going to. which I, I guess is just it, it's it's a nice way of looking at life and one that she never has the the benefit of seeing in property because she mm, is fixed yeah. and she will never know that one day people are going to be absolutely disgraced by the slave trade you know I suppose they're all women who in so oh, sorry they're all uh, main characters rather who in such different ways that their room to be and their identity is absolutely shaped by their mothers and their small and large tragedies and mm. you know where Larry's identity, you know, even as a Canadian man, is, you know, to do with the mistake that his mother made. And even though she is someone who's trying to take up as little space as possible, her, you know, I think unrecognized mental illness is something that sort of hovered over him. And it means that it takes him a long time Mm -hmm. to, to find himself the same. You know, George has got this amazing, eclectic, sort of dazzling, dizzying mother, but how does she have room to be a teenage girl when she feels like she's got a mother who's already sort of been there and done that? And, um, you know, Manon as well, she is in this situation because, you know, and it's sort of, I think perhaps more, you know, what you would expect of the time, but, 
you know, all of her, because her life is, I think, a tragedy, even though she is the architect of the tragedies mm. of others, mm. that the the misery and what she feels is sort of her due and what she's to expect. It's because of, you know, what her mother persuaded her into. And also, of course, the, you know, idolizing her father and never yeah. really forgiving her mother for mm. never forgiving mm. her father for, you know, a mysterious thing that you will find out when you read it. <laughs> no spoilers allowed yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> I think, though, although in property, it, it does seem like these identities are sort of set because they are products of the historical situation. What I really loved about Larry's party was that his identity is in flux. Mm-hmm. Like it's constantly evolving. In fact, even though there are all these events that have shaped him, we never actually see these events happen. We never hear about them. Yeah. We only ever hear the reflections on them or the time before them or the time after them. Mm. So the way he perceives them changes depending on his feelings. And I think you, when you're reading it, you're sort of thinking, well, yeah, as a human being, one day to the next, I feel different. I am different. We all are, depending on what's going on. Um, and every chapter they reset the things that have shaped him mm. as though we've not read them before yeah, and, and what, yeah what is that about do you so, think well, I think that means that although we see that his character previously it's not a bit like it's a serialized yeah. novel from Dickensian times yeah. like yeah we mm. know it's like it's always the the first person at, sorry it's always the, the third person but, but in the present and it's always like his wife um, he divorced his wife or he, yeah. his father died. We find out over and over again. It's almost like it, it's casting light on the fact that although his character and his identity is constantly evolving, mm. so is ours as protagonist, mm. as uh, readers. Right. So I, I guess like we're reading it and it's not assumed that we always remember what's gone before because yeah. we mm. might be a new person in this new chapter as well as he is. And I think that our identity oh, that's so fascinating. Uh, <laughs> that's, so, that's so good. <laughs> But everything about us is formed from the stories we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. And those recaps, you know, they're Larry crafting his own story and something that feels very, very raw. In the future, he'll look back and think, well, I did that because of that. And that's part of me now. But it's him, I think, or, you know, Carol Shields establishing a distance. And it, it, it goes back so beautifully then to the maze thing. And there's that note about mm. like how a maze only makes sense when seen from above. And yes. it's, it's that thing that happens in all of our lives where like um, an event that happened yesterday that might seem annoying or inconsequential when I look back at it in five years time may have been a great shaping force. And yeah. as humans, we're just kind of in this pinball machine being rattled mm. around or whatever. And only with retrospect can we actually see what these things meant. And we enforce patterns on things where there are no patterns. And I think that's probably about as much time as we've got i hope you've enjoyed the experience of reading these three books yes thank you for getting us to read three books i just wouldn't have read in succession at all no i don't it was a great experience. i'm so delighted and i never would have picked up how to be both again and it has brought me such joy and wonder so um again i'm gonna be a, a wider reader now yeah, i think yeah. don't thank me thank, thank the women's prize <laughs> <laughs> it's just been lovely discuss it's it's so rare like sometimes you read the same book as w- someone else and you get to discuss it but to read three and then discuss them all is, is a real privilege it's a very good book club <laughs> I'm Zing Zing, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. You definitely want to head to our website to find out more about the Reading Women Challenge, get exclusive video and audio content, and check out the hashtag ReadingWomen on Instagram and Twitter to join in the conversation around the 24 brilliant past winners of the Women's Prize for Fiction. Please click subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It really helps spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.